Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called A King for This Hour. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 20th, 2016. The day after the U.S. election, my husband, an emergency room physician, treated an unprecedented number of panic attacks during his eight-hour shift. The patients were all racial minorities and or women. Around the country, reports of hate crimes have multiplied this week, so much so that major news organizations like the New York Times have called on the president-elect to condemn racist, sexist, and homophobic rhetoric quickly and without qualification. At the time of this writing, he has not done so. I am shaken to the core. Sure, I've been disappointed by election results before, but never have I felt so betrayed and unhoused. I feel as if a tidal wave of hatred has washed over the people I love. I feel as if my country has just shown my brown-skinned body the door. At the same time, I'm aware that I enjoy a great deal of privilege relative to other people now quaking at the prospect of a Trump presidency. I am a U.S. citizen. I live in a progressive part of the country. I'm economically secure. And my religious and sexual identities place me squarely within the majority. Alongside my frightened search for allies and protectors is the conviction that I need to stand up for those who are more scared and vulnerable than I am. It's hard to write in a moment like this, hard to believe that words matter, hard to place faith in flimsy sentences on a screen. All I want to do right now is act, move, hide, fight, run. Why waste time on words and stories? And yet what seems clearer by the day is that America has just suffered an epic failure in storytelling. Millions of us, specifically millions who profess faith in Jesus Christ, have given ourselves over to the wrong story a story of greatness, a story of conquest, a story of victory at any cost. This week, the Church celebrates Christ the King, or Reign of Christ Sunday. It's a hinge week between the liturgical seasons of ordinary time and Advent, a single Sunday when we pause to reflect on the meaning of Christ's kingship. I'm still a novice when it comes to the nuances of the liturgical calendar, so when I turned to the lectionary this week, I expected to find passages that sound, well, kingly. Something glorious from the book of Revelations, perhaps, about Jesus on his heavenly throne, decked out in fancy robes and a jeweled crown. Or maybe something grand and prophetic from Isaiah, a son will be given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Or at least a shiny moment from one of the Gospels. Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus emerging from the waters of baptism, heaven thundering in his ears. But no, I found none of those. What I found is a crucifixion scene, a stripped and suffocating man racked with pain I cannot fathom, a crowd of mockers spewing hatred of his naked body, a man hanging between thieves, derision in his ears, speaking blessing and promise to one less fortunate than himself. Can we pause for a moment and contemplate this paradox? This is our king. This is our king. If there is any moment in the Christian calendar that must smack all smugness out of me, all arrogance, all gleefulness, all scorn, surely this this one has to be it. Our king was a dead man walking. His chosen path to glory was the cross. If paradise was anywhere, it was with him, only and exactly where his oppressors left him to die. Today, with me, paradise. What does it mean in this time and place to honor Christ's kingship through his passion? What does the cross offer us by way of example, warning, and benediction? What story can we write that will echo our kings? 
I can only begin to speculate, but as I sit with this week's lectionary passages, what strikes me most is what I don't see. I see no path to glory that sidesteps humility, surrender, and sacrificial love. I see no permission to secure my prosperity at the expense of another's suffering. I see no tolerance for the belief that holy ends justify debased means. I see no evidence that truth-telling is optional. I see no kingdom which favors the contemptuous over the broken-hearted. And I, I see no church that thrives when it aligns itself with brute power. Where does this leave us? I think it leaves us with a king who makes us profoundly uncomfortable. During this week, when millions of voters decided to make America great again, I am wondering what it means to bend the knee to a king who exchanged his crown for a cross. As I engage in strained conversation with Christians who voted differently than I did, I am struggling to honor a sovereign who spoke words of blessing even in his darkest hour. As I hear people calling for a quick return to forgiveness and unity, I am remembering that grace in the crucified one's kingdom is neither easy nor cheap. It cost the king his life. When I'm tempted to couch either denial or apathy in some version of calm down, God's in control, I'm reminded that Jesus' kingdom is incarnational through and through. It's a cop-out to expect God to act where I will not. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, he spoke hope to a thief who needed solace. He hung in the gap between one man's derision and another man's hunger, absorbing both into his broken body. This is our king. My prayer for this hard season in America's history is that we will find ways to walk as Jesus walked, to spend ourselves for love of the other, to listen, to protect, to endure, and to bless. In my own life right now, I am strengthened by the love of my friends and by the fierceness with which people of faith are rallying to shield the vulnerable from terror and harm. The truth is, the Church has always proven itself in times of peril. Peril brings forth prophets. It lights holy fires. It teaches us the radical nature of love. After Christ the King Sunday, we will enter into Advent, a season of waiting, longing, and listening. Holding firm to our vision of a better kingdom, we will walk into the expectant darkness, waiting for the light to dawn, and straining to hear the first cries of new life. Yes, there are reasons for fear right now, reasons for anger, reasons for grief, but we are not a people bereft of hope. We are not abandoned. We know where to look for paradise. We have the right king for this hour. For books this week, we review Richard Rohr's The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. Although the doctrine of the Trinity is supposedly central to Christianity, it's often sidelined as a mystery that has little bearing on our actual lives as Christians. In his newest book, The Divine Dance, Franciscan priest, contemplative, and writer Richard Rohr attempts to set the record straight. We always become what we behold, he argues, meaning that we impoverish ourselves when we imagine God as imperial and aloof, a supreme monarch or a critical spectator. The Trinity, he suggests, offers an essential corrective because it is, in fact, the very heart and essence of God. God is fundamentally relational, communal, and hospitable. God is the divine dance itself, an eternal and loving flow between Father, Son, and Spirit that creates, welcomes, mirrors, and delights us. Don't start with the one and make it into three, Rohr writes, but start with three and see that this is the deepest nature of the one. If this seems hard to wrap your mind around, then you're right where you need to be, because Rohr's book is not an intellectual treatise on Trinitarian theology. It's a devotional, a quick read that feels deceptively easy to give our assent to, until a slower, more contemplative read reveals how profound and challenging its insights really are. All authentic knowledge of God, Rohr insists, is participatory knowledge, knowledge gained in contemplation. 
so we might rather pray Aurora's book than read it. But if we do, it will yield up all kinds of treasures to enrich and enliven our experiences of God. For movies this week, we review Small is Beautiful, a tiny house documentary. This 68-minute film about the tiny house movement takes place, where else, in ever-progressive Portland. The Australian filmmaker Jeremy Beasley follows four people who build their tiny houses. Ben is in his 20s, and for him, building a house helps to work out issues about his deceased father. Karen is 50, and she's questioning things after her partner committed suicide. Nikki and Mitchell and their two dogs are in their early 30s, and together they want to live a life different from American cultural assumptions. As is often the case in the tiny house movement, none of these people had any construction experience. There's an ongoing debate about definitions, but by one measure, a tiny house is under 325 square feet. Many tiny houses are built on a flatbed utility trailer, raising questions about permits, permanence, and mobility. One of the great things about this film is that it does not romanticize its subject. Nikki and Mitchell say that working and then living so closely will make or break you. Ben says, I feel like I have a lot in common with Captain Ahab. It's like me versus my tiny house. I'm trying to build this thing, and this thing is trying everything it can to not get built. The tiny house movement raises all sorts of interesting questions, like how much house do you need to be happy? What is the gift economy? Community. Why is it that since 1870 the average size of a house has doubled, even though the average size of families has gotten smaller? For another take on this growing movement, see the other documentary, Tiny, a story about living small. And finally, for poems this week, we have Dennis Levertov, Denise Levertov's Icon, The Harrowing of Hell. Down through the tomb's inward arch, he is shouldered out into limbo to gather them, dazed from dreamless slumber. The merciful dead, the prophets, the innocents, just his own age and those unnumbered others waiting here, unaware. In an endless void, he is ending now, stooping to tug at their hands, to pull them from their sarcophagi, Dazzled, almost unwilling. Didmus, neighbor in death, Golgotha dust still streaked on the dried sweat of his body, no one had washed and anointed. Is here for sequence, is not known in limbo. The promise given from cross to cross at noon, arches beyond sunset and dawn. All these he will swiftly lead to the paradise road. They are safe. That done, there must take place that struggle no human presumes to picture. Living, dying, descending to rescue the just from shadow were less so travails than this, to break through earth and stone of the faithless world back to the cold sepulchre, tear-stained, to break from them into breath and heartbeat and walk the world again, closed into days and weeks again, wounds of his anguish open, and spirit streaming through every cell of flesh, so that if mortal sight could bear to perceive it, it would be seen his mortal flesh was lit from within, now an aching for home. He must return first in divine patience, and no hunger again, and give to humble friends the joy of giving him food, fish, and a honeycomb. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 20th, 2016. I'm Debbie Thomas.